Good morning, and welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host Kevin Hopkins, and this is episode 65. So we're coming towards the end of the book of Revelation. Uh, I'll do something else uh, once we finish the book of Revelation. I don't know if I'll wrap this uh, this podcast up totally and just kind of leave it in place as a study through the book of Revelation, or if I'll keep the title of this podcast and continue to record episodes and pursue different topics or different books of the Bible. We're kind of yet to determine how all of that will work out, but something's coming next and uh, we'll let you know when we get there. Today we begin Revelation chapter 21. And you're probably tired of me reminding you, but everything in the book of Revelation is symbolic. And and I want to say a word about that before we continue, and certainly before we wrap up in the book of Revelation, because a lot of what I call theological violence has been done to the Bible, but particularly the book of Revelation. When we take what is symbolic and we and we treat it as though it were literal, and it's especially damaging to the message and to us when we flip-flop back and forth. So you'll see, uh, they're not scholars, they're authors, um, people with opinions, preachers, who dive into the book of Revelation and they treat part of, part of it as symbolic and the very next part as, as literal. And they flip-flop back and forth between what's literal and what's symbolic and what the symbols mean and then what part is literal and you lose the ability to to cope with it all. And, and I think that's why people have traditionally gotten very weary of trying to study the book of Revelation because part of it's literal, part of it's symbolic. In, in places, the symbols mean literal things. Um, and, and you get people jumping through all kinds of weird translational hoops to say this bug represents a helicopter and this horse represents a tank. Um, those things are, are, are just not true. And, and they lead people to believe that the symbolisms are too confusing and they require some sort of special revelation from God to understand that's not true. This letter was circulated between people who had no biblical background whatsoever because there wasn't yet a Bible when this was circulated. Um, some of the letters of Paul were finally being put together in some kind of form, but there wasn't yet a New Testament because Revelation wasn't in it yet. So you couldn't have had people with vast Bible study knowledge who've listened to 90,000 cassette tapes and watched 2,000 DVDs and listened to 10,000 sermons uh, online. There just wasn't that kind of depth of overexposure in John's culture. So these letters came to churches made up of people who'd been Jews before 
and would catch the Jewish apocalyptic literature symbolism. And they could say, wait, that means that stands for this. And this stands for this. They could explain numerology, Jewish numerology, Hebrew numerology, to the Roman folk in their congregation or the Turkish folk. Now, all of those cultures had the same kind of numerology, so it wouldn't be as foreign to them as it is to us. But um, you would have those people within the congregation who could keep the rest of the folks grounded in what the symbolisms stood for. Without that today, it's really easy to go far afield. And, and people have abused that possibility horribly in the past couple of centuries especially to turn the book of Revelation into saying things it never says, representing things it doesn't represent, speaking about things that never occur in the book. So on the topic of, say, the Great Tribulation, people quote Revelation back and forth, and and the book of Revelation never contains a defined, time-limited, quote, Great Tribulation. These are those who are coming out of great testing, is what, is what the angel says. He doesn't say they're coming out of a time-limited Great Tribulation. People invented that concept and forced the book of Revelation to say it. The same is true with the idea of a rapture. There's no rapture anywhere in the book of Revelation. And yet I have friends who comb the book of Revelation and say, oh, look, right here, these people have changed places from earth to heaven. So, so there must have been a rapture in between. And, and what they're talking about is the 164 or the 144,000 who first appear from 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, and then the 144,000 standing on Zion who worship the Lamb. The Old Testament 144,000 and the New Testament 144,000, they didn't change. They're different groups. You see, people do that kind of, I call it violence because it disrupts the meaning of the book of Revelation and it disrupts its witness in your life and mine, which is one of the two things that the book of Revelation stands for, the word of God and the witness of the church. And when the word and the witness are corrupted by people who would do it violence, it kills the message. And, and you'll see before we're done the curse at the very end of the book that applies to a whole bunch of folks. And, and I pray not to me because I'm trying very hard not to change anything in the book. There are times that I've honestly said, I think it, it means this. I, I believe this is what he's talking about. I could be wrong. I'm not going to tell you that I know exactly what it is because I'm still learning. I'm not a revelation expert. I'm a guy with a lot of hours in the book of Revelation across 40 years of time, but I'm not an expert. So I just have to say, perhaps, and, and I believe, and those are my convictions. And if they're wrong, I want you to understand Kevin was wrong. I'm not trying to rewrite 
the scripture and what it says. So bear in mind, all of this still very symbolic, especially as we open chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, the home of God is now with his people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will no longer have a hold on them. Neither will grief or crying or pain. The previous order of things has passed away. The one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for this message is trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water freely from the spring of living water. Those who prevail will inherit all things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers and idolaters, and those who lie, they will be sentenced to the lake of burning fire and sulfur. This is the second death. We'll stop there for today. Symbols, very familiar symbols, references to previous scriptures. So let's work through them slowly. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It's interesting that John sees a new order that has the shape of the old order, a heaven and an earth. If the old ones have passed away, that means Everybody on the earth would have been wiped out, right? Why is there a need for a new earth? Well, the old ones didn't stop existing. The old ones were converted into the new ones. It wasn't the heaven and the earth that changed. It was the order of things that changed. It was the nature of things that changed. <clears throat> and there was no longer any sea. That's an interesting statement. Why wouldn't there be an ocean? Bear in mind that in the Gospel of John, in the Epistles of John, and in the book of Revelation, in everything that the Apostle John wrote, water always represents the Holy Spirit. Why was the Holy Spirit given to us? To comfort us, to shepherd us, to guide us until Christ's return. If time ceases to exist and the old order has passed away, no need for water. We don't have to drink anymore because we will be spiritual beings, not physical beings. And the Holy Spirit can now exist in concert with the Trinity and not separated from them and hanging out with us to guide us to them, right? I saw the Holy City, the New Jerusalem, descending from heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I've heard a lot of people talk about the New Jerusalem. But this ties straight back to the words of Christ. You'll remember that in the last part of his life, he was walking with his disciples through the temple, through Jerusalem. And they were admiring the architecture, the buildings, the the grandiose structure of the temple. And Jesus said, you think that's amazing? This is all going to fall down. You can tear it all down and I'll put it back in three days. A new temple, a new Jerusalem, right? In three days. What's he talking about there? Obviously, he's talking about his resurrection. He's talking about rising from the dead after three days, right? And and it's only parts of three days. So, what's he saying? What was he telling his disciples? Because when he was resurrected, the temple was still standing. It hadn't been torn down. Oh, but the order had changed, remember? The, the structure of things changed when Jesus died on the cross. The Bible says that the curtain, the veil in the temple that divided people from God, the, the courtyard from the holiest of holies, was rent top to bottom and, and laid open so that never again was God separated from his people. In that moment... His temple was no longer in brick and stone. His temple came to be in a temple not built by human hands. His temple came to be in the hearts of those who knew him, who loved him, who believed in him, who worshipped him. The temple of God in that moment switched places. The order all changed up so that he came to live from that time on in the hearts of people, not in a box, not in an ark, not in a holy of holies up on a mountain somewhere. And where is Jerusalem the holy city? Well, it's where God lives. And so if God no longer lives in that Palestinian settlement that people still fight over to this day, but now God lives in the hearts of those who love him and believe in him, then they together, all of them, worldwide, they are the new dwelling place of God. They are the new temple. They are the new Jerusalem. And that's made possible because God came down from heaven, bridged the gap, ended the separation, set a new order in place where he now lives in the hearts of those who love him. And they have brought God's kingdom to bear on this earth by the way they live out the things he's called them to do. The disciples said, Lord, would you teach us to pray? He said, sure, pray like this. Father in heaven, may your name be esteemed as holy. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come, not your kingdom go, 
not bring us to your kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus taught his disciples to pray for, was that the kingdom of God would come on earth and his will would be done here. How will that happen? Because it'll be done by those people in whose hearts he lives. See, you're already part of the kingdom of God living on this earth. You are bringing the kingdom of God to bear in the decisions that you make, in the words that you speak, in the acts that you do by which you will be judged. Couldn't judge you by your works if you weren't expected to accomplish his purposes through them. Do you understand that? Your works couldn't be judged any other way unless they were intended by God to do his work in this world. Otherwise, what would be to judge? She is the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Over and over in the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. I don't know how much clearer he could be right here. He's not talking about another city that looks like the Palestinian burg of Jerusalem. He's not talking about smashing the Muslims off the Dome of the Rock and rebuilding his temple there. He doesn't need a temple there. If you're waiting for God to, to incinerate the Dome of the Rock so that the Jews can rebuild their temple on that spot, you're going to be really disappointed. I don't believe it's ever going to happen. It doesn't need to because God has a home not made by human hands in the hearts of his believers. Then I heard a voice from the throne. Look! Exclamation point. That word means understand. Observe. The home of God is now with his people. <laughs> I mean, the more I read, the more you realize, wow, this is really clear. How did we miss this? The home of God is now with his people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be with them himself as their God. Every time I go to church and, and the worship leader gets up and says, let's just invite God to fill this place with his presence. Let's invite Holy Spirit to join us here. I just kind of chuckle. Does the dude not understand? God's here. He came in the hearts of every person who believes in him that's come through that door. You can't help but magnify his presence because it's magnified as person after person after person after person who knows him comes in the door. It's why he said, wherever two or more agree on anything in my name, it'll be done. They are magnifying his presence because he lives in them. See, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's how it is right now with everybody who's a Christian. It's why we enjoy church so much because God is magnified. Christ is magnified as more of us get together and greet each other and love each other and share his presence. God just gets more and more and more present. 
And if the worship leader will just stay out of the way and not muck it up, God will be known in that place. The best worship leaders are the people that kind of just stay out of the way and let God do what God wants to do. They don't try to manipulate. They don't try to work people up. I, I used to be an evangelist, and, and I traveled around about a five-state area. I thought that was what I was going to do for my vocation. I thought that was my calling. When I first was dealing with a call to ministry, I thought it was to be an evangelist. And, and so I went to this church in Texas, and I was speaking. We are having revival. God had moved in a mighty way the first night of the meetings. And the second night, the worship leader got up bound and determined to recreate what had happened the night before. And so he started to, to stress and he started to over sing and he started to over talk and he started to really put his hands on the thing in a way that was manipulative. He didn't mean to be bad. He was just trying to recreate what had happened the night before thinking that he and I had anything to do with its creation. And, and finally, I stood up and said, Brother, relax. If God wants to be known tonight, he'll be known. But it probably won't be like he was known last night. It will probably be in an entirely new way. Let's just let him do what he's going to do. And that guy took a deep breath and he said, You're right. He took his hands off. He said, Let's, let's just sing this song before Kevin comes to, to preach, he prayed a prayer and he started to sing this song and it just hooked in, in everybody's soul. And, and it got louder and it got louder and he stopped leading and people kept singing and the musicians kept playing. They didn't even have their eyes open. They were just so blessed by the act of worship, by being free to play and express their worship to God. And the people had caught the same bug and they were just singing their lives out before Jesus himself. And it was so clear that God was there. I just let it go on until finally everybody wound down and stopped singing. Nobody told them to sit down. They just did. And they looked at me like, okay, now you're preaching. <laughs> and and I, I have to tell you, that's the freest I've ever felt in my life to just preach, to just lay out the word of God. And I got halfway through the sermon. I hadn't even got to what I thought were the good parts yet. <clears throat> and people started coming to the altar. There, there wasn't a, a kneeling rail at that church. There were steps up to the platform. So people started kneeling on those steps. And I'm preaching along and people are coming and more people are coming. I haven't given an invitation I mean, this isn't the way this is supposed to work. And and people are starting to kneel at the front pew because the steps were full and people are laying hands on friends and, and praying out loud to God to answer prayers. And I said, I'm not going to preach anymore. God's doing something. Let's join him there. And they all kind of chuckled and said, amen. And somebody in the in the congregation started to sing a song. And those who wanted to sing quietly sang along as other people prayed and, and wept and gave their problems and their hearts to Jesus Christ. I didn't have to give an invitation. I didn't have to pray a sinner's prayer or talk about the Roman road or the cross in the canyon. I didn't lay out any of that stuff. God worked. God moved. 
because God had come in in the hearts of people earnestly desiring to see that kind of move of God in their church. And when they all wanted it that badly, it wouldn't have mattered what I could have preached nursery rhymes. God was coming and they were not going to be denied. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will no longer have a hold on them nor grief, nor crying, or pain, or the, for the previous order of things has passed away. Death is gone. O grave, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This has already happened. That old order of death being a hopeless place where people sit by a graveside and wonder what's next, that's over. That old order is gone. There's a new order now where those who lose loved ones, Paul says, I don't want you to grieve like the pagans. I want you to be aware of what's happening here, that that the body that that we love, that represented that person to us, it's done. (laughs) It's served its purpose. It's now an empty shell. And what we commit back to the ground is only that which came from the dirt, the spirit, the person that we knew, the voice that we heard, the laughter that we shared, the love that we saw in their eyes, that all exists in a different place now. It's just moved. And and those of us who are in Christ will move to the same place. It takes away the tears and the grieving. It takes away the grief and the crying and the pain because we have hope. Hope displaces all of that grieving and pain because while we miss them, we know we'll see them again. A few years ago, my daughter took off for Europe. She went just to spend uh, a year as a nanny and she ended up staying three and she was gone a lot. She was gone a long time. The, The coronavirus hit and travel was shut down and I couldn't get there and she couldn't come home. I didn't see her for at least two years. And and to be honest with you, it was was burdensome. It caused me some pain to not be able to see my youngest daughter for two years. And we heard from her and we Skyped back and forth and we had phone calls back and forth and we, we knew what was going on in her life and that she was very happy in Europe. One of these days, she's going to move to Europe and probably stay forever. But but to be apart from her for those two years, it grieved me some. It hurt. But I knew. I knew I'd see her again. I knew she would come home. I didn't know how long I would live. I hoped I would live until that time came. I thought I would. I had faith that I would. And so it didn't cause me great pain. Just the longing of missing my kid. She's come back. She's in graduate school. She'll be in graduate school another year and a half or so, and then she'll probably zip right back across the ocean and live the rest of her years in Europe, and I'll seldom see her. But that's okay. I know I will see her. And and there's some excitement knowing that where she's going is really cool, and I'll have an excuse to go visit. That's how heaven is to me. I've lost dear loved ones, some very, very recently. 
and I long to see them again, but I have faith that I will. And the place that they've gone is really cool. And one day I won't just go visit, I'll go stay there with them. I'm going to the same place. So death, grave, have no meaning anymore. It's just a passage from this glory into that glory, the Apostle Paul says. To, to be here is to do the work of God. To go there is to spend eternity with my loved ones and with Christ. I can't lose in this proposition. There's no reason for grief and agony and pain and crying over death because it has no power anymore. The previous order is gone. Then the one who sat on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Everything changes now. From the cross of Christ on, everything changes. Write this down. This message is trustworthy and true. It is finished. Where did those words come from? This isn't the first time they've appeared in Scripture. Where was the first time they appeared? On the cross. On the cross. Hello. Are you catching on now? It's pretty thick right here, yeah? I mean, if you miss this, it's only because nobody's helped you understand it. You haven't dug very deep right here. It's pretty easy. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water freely from the spring of living water. Oh, wait, where's that come from? John's Gospel, chapter 8. The woman accused of being caught in the very act of adultery. And they're gonna and they're gonna stone her. And Jesus, when he's pressed for an answer, <coughs> Moses says, We should stone such women. What do you say? He crouches down and he writes in the dirt. And they press him for an answer. Stop that. What are you doing? Give us an answer. Moses says, Stoner, what do you say? Jesus stands up and he says, Okay, stoner, but. Here's the standard. The person who throws the first stone must be without sin. And then the Bible says he crouches down and he begins to write in the dirt again. Now, anytime something happens twice in scripture, you should go look and see what it means. What is this writing in the dirt? Well, why are they there? <clears throat> why are they trying to trick Jesus? Because the night before in their great water ceremony, where they've taken all the water out of the temple and they're bringing it back to celebrate water in the desert. People haven't had anything to drink for a couple of days. And Jesus jumps up on a, on a place that's high and says, hey, is anybody thirsty? If he is, let him come to me. And as this scripture says, apparently the one they were reading at that very time, I will cause a spring of living water to come up from within him. And it made him so mad they wanted to kill him. They asked the guards, why didn't you grab him right then? They're like, well, the crowd would have killed us. So they drag this woman to him and they're doing all this accusation. And he writes in the dirt. What in the world is writing in the dirt? Well, that scripture that he quoted and that's quoted right here is from Jeremiah chapter 17. And it says, Lord, those who put you to shame will themselves be put to shame. They will have their names written in the dust 
for they have forsaken you, the spring of living water. Hello? As the scripture says, I'll cause a spring of living water to well up within him. That's what he's quoting. That's what he's quoting here. To the thirsty, I will give water freely from the spring of living water. He's doing it again. He's saying, look, I am the living water. And I'll give you everything you need so that you will never thirst again. The words that he spoke to the woman at the well. Those who endure to the end will inherit all things. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers and idolaters, and those who lie will be sentenced to the lake of burning fire and sulfur. This is the second death. It's a repeat of the judgment from from the last chapter. It's a dividing point right here. This vision of the new heaven and the new earth is a dividing point which lays back in history at the cross. And you are right now on one side of that history or the other. You are either on the side of the cross or on the side of the lake of sulfur. You are either written in the Lamb's book of life or you're not. I don't have to put visions in front of you of a rapture and being left behind. The the dividing point wasn't the rapture. The dividing point was the cross. Are you on the right side of history today? You say, well, Kevin, what if it's not true? What if it's all just a story? Well, if it's all just a story and none of it's true, and I've taken my place on the side of the cross, and I've chosen to do righteous, good things with my life, I've lost nothing. And I made a whole bunch of people happy along the way. I could have had a lot more money, maybe, but I couldn't take that with me anyway. So why not do good with other for other people with it? If I'm wrong, I lived a good life, and I blessed a lot of people for nothing. What if you're wrong? What if it's not a what if it's not just a story? What if it really is the dividing point in history and you must be you must choose to be on one side or the other? I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the dividing line that cuts through history and you are either on the right or the wrong side of that line. If I'm wrong, I lose nothing. If you're wrong, you're in a dangerous, dangerous place. I hope today that you know which side of the cross you're on. I hope today that your soul knows the hunger to see God move in this world. I hope that your soul knows the quenching of the the spring of living water from within you. I hope that your soul has experienced the hope that wipes away every tear from our eyes.